Hello and welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor, and today I'm joined by one of the newest members of Sifted's team. Hi, I'm Orlando, Sifted's commissioning editor. And at Sifted, if you haven't heard of us before, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast, every week we peek inside the Sifted newsroom, discuss the biggest things our journalists have been reporting on and speak to some of the people behind the headlines. Well, this week, we're going to hear about some promising financial results from UK Metaverse startup Improbable and about how French AI startup Mistral has released its first piece of technology after raising $105 million in a seed round back in June. We'll also get details on how vertical farming startup Infarm has filed for bankruptcy in the Netherlands. And we'll be joined by another new starter at Sifted, Christina Gallardo, who has been reporting on Europe's quest to build strategically important technology, plus an interview with one founder on just how hard it is to get money from the EU's innovation funding programme. And you were in Europe quite recently, uh, I believe, Amy. Well, I mean, the UK is technically still part of the continent, but I was in the EU recently. I was in Munich over the weekend for a conference that began on a Sunday for no apparent reason. Uh, I was at Bits and Pretzels, where I'd say a good maybe 40% of the men in attendance were wearing lederhosen. All of the speakers were offered lederhosen to wear on stage and a good percentage of them took it up and i took up the offer of a dirndl which i wore all day long on sunday well that's amazing it's amazing that they give you your own lederhosen as well i'm, I'm pleased you don't have to have your your own yeah i mean some of the germans bavarians were bringing their own lederhosen but i heard that and i have not factored this but i heard that the uh, state of bavaria contributed some funding to this conference and i wonder whether they were signing off on the dundles and lederhosen and did you get to keep your dundle i have now got my dundle in my wardrobe in london so if any bavarians want to invite me to a wedding i am all ready to go great anyway let's get on with it we're starting off in the uk london-based virtual world building company improbable this week released its latest financial results and there was some positive news for the company Amy, who are Improbable and what did we learn this week? So Improbable, one of those London tech darlings that have actually been around for quite a while. They were founded in 2012 and they've been backed by Andreessen Horowitz and SoftBank, which partly contributes to the big buzz around them. But they've been through some kind of choppy times. They went in very hard into gaming. Then they sold off some of their gaming studios that were losing money. Then they got very much into defence and they were working with the Ministry of Defence in the UK. And then earlier this year, they sold off their defence arm and Last year, they went very big in the metaverse. Now, what's surprising is that this week it announced that it has decreased losses as it's doubled down on building tech for the metaverse, which I think is probably quite a surprise to lots of us listening who maybe assume that the metaverse is dead and anything to do with the metaverse is a bad idea. But according to Improbable's latest financial results, the company has reduced its losses from £105 million in 2021 to just £19 million in 2022, increasing revenues 2.6 times in the same period to £78 million. It did previously say that it was targeting profitability in 2022, so it didn't quite manage that, but it's not really super far off. Yeah, given given all the scepticism about the metaverse, it sounds very promising for them. Where's the revenues coming from? What are they what are they actually doing? So they're partnering with a bunch of sports organizations, for example. So it recently partnered with Major League Baseball in the US to broadcast an all-stars game inside a virtual 
stadium. And the CEO, who's called Herman Neruda, when he was announcing these results on a video call this week, he said, I quote, something very interesting is happening in sports. An industry that historically has relied on broadcast and in-person attendance is waking up to the possibilities of massive virtual experiences. Sports are fiendishly undermonetized. A club like Real Madrid will make less money per fan than Candy Crush. And I guess that's quite an interesting point, isn't it? That there's only so much room in a stadium and lots of big sports organizations, big sports clubs have millions of fans around the world. So this is an interesting opportunity for them to to get in touch with them. It's amazing. You said sports are fiendishly unmonetized. I mean, you wouldn't think of that looking at the Premier League or European football. Yeah, but there's even more money to be made, apparently, and Improbable is making some of it. And next up, we are off to Paris. The much-hyped startup Mistral on Wednesday released its first piece of technology since raising a monster 105 million euro seed round back in June. The, the product is a gen AI model that Mistral says is better than the alternatives from the big tech companies like Meta. Orlando, how how is this tiny young French startup, you know, what's its claim that it's better than the, the big boys? Yes, well, young is is the word, isn't it? Because remember, the June raise came just four weeks after Mistral was set up. So it was very much in keeping with this kind of heady AI boom that we're very much still in the thick of right now. Uh, given that there was some scepticism about Mistral, whether it could live up to the hype. And this is its first uh, piece of tech. So they already can claim it outperforms others on the market, including Meta's Llama 2. And they say it's, it requires 50% less computational power. Anyway, it's a significant milestone for Mistral. Co-founder Arthur Mensch says it's a shot across the bow to those who claim that European startups can't take on the big tech companies. And he told Sifted that the reason he and his co-founders left their companies to found Mistral in the first place was because they weren't innovative enough. And quite a lot of people are starting to question whether these monster seed rounds to train AI models, like we also saw with Stability AI, these kind of 100 million dollar euro pound whatever you just these crazy big seed rounds people are wondering whether they're actually a smart use of money given how expensive ai models are to train what did mr have to say about that yes it's interesting they won't say how much it cost but they did say it took about two hundred thousand gpu hours to do so so that's a measure of how much computational power is used so if we do a bit of simple maths nvidia's latest chips cost around two to two and a half dollars per hour on the cloud so that means Mistral's model probably cost $400,000 to $450,000. And that's in compute alone, let alone all the other costs involved. So yeah, Mensch hasn't said how Mistral is able to train more efficient models than its competitors, but he does say that his team has put a lot of effort into the data side, as well as the algorithms. And of course, yes, as you say, people have raised the question of whether using equity financing to pay for this is a good idea. Mensch actually himself told us that the economics of it aren't great and suggested that Mistral might need to own or share its hardware resources in the future. And one more story before we get into some interviews. There's more bad news for Europe's indoor farming sector. Berlin-based startup Infarm has been declared bankrupt in the Netherlands. Amy, what does Infarm do exactly, and why has it been struggling? So Infarm was once upon a time Europe's largest vertical farming company, which are these startups that most of them began growing things like lettuce, some grew things like tomatoes, indoors in these sort of, as as the name suggests, like vertical stacks of kind of containers or whatever that they were they were growing them in. And the idea was that you could bring 
farming closer to where people wanted to buy things like lettuce leaves they would therefore be fresher and that they might even be cheaper a big problem was that the unit economics just never really stacked up yeah and infarm has has been through some rough times recently so it it launched in 2013 and it raised almost 500 million dollars in total according to deal room from some big high profile investors like atomico and borderton it's worth also saying that not only was this kind of business model a bit challenged from the start, but also the rise in energy prices in Europe over the past year and a bit has really hit this particular industry hard because they obviously rely on a lot of electricity in their warehouses to enable the crops to grow. And Infarm said that contributed a lot to the, the company's challenges reaching profitability. Last year in November 2022, it laid off half its staff. It also made the point then that the disruption of supply chains had affected the business. And and now the latest news is that it's been declared bankrupt in the Netherlands as of earlier in September. It's all, I mean, this is just kind of latest in the saga because the company has already shut down operations across many of its key markets like the UK, France, Germany, the Netherlands and Denmark, which we reported back in June. It does still have some operations around the world. So it is building a facility in Toronto in Canada. And there's also the likelihood that it might expand to the Middle East. The Qatar Investment Authority invested in its last funding round. And in the Middle East, there's slightly different dynamic with you know, energy prices are not such a big issue. And also the governments are kind of interested in improving food security in that part of the world. Yes, you can't grow an awful lot of lettuce in Qatar, I guess. Nope, but you can in a vertical farm. Yes, but I mean, as we've reported before, this isn't the only vertical farming startup that's been having issues in the last few years. No, it's definitely a an industry that we saw really boom and now not quite bust, but it's definitely not attracting as much investment. So in 2020, vertical farming startups in Europe attracted half a billion pounds in VC capital. Last year, they just attracted a hundred million pounds. So a lot less. And we also found that at least 15 vertical farming startups headquartered in Europe have gone bankrupt in recent times, including the French startup Agricool and the Netherlands startup Glow Farms. So is it fair to say, given all that, that this is the end of uh, vertical farming as a, as a model? I don't, I mean, personally, I don't think so. I think the technology will find a use. I just don't think it's the use that lots of these European startups thought it would be. So, you know, Invarm, for example, was in supermarkets in Berlin selling quite expensive lettuce. I don't think that's a use case we'll see. But as we just mentioned, you know, in parts of the world where this stuff doesn't grow as easily, where energy's cheaper, then I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, eventually it, it works out. There's also a question of scale, whether you do it on a much smaller scale, whether you need to have really, really big warehouses growing this stuff. I think all that still needs to be figured out. Next up, we're joined by another new member of the Sifted team, Christina Gallardo, our tech policy reporter. This week, she's been reporting on how the US is trying to lure British microchip companies to its shores, and separately on how the UK and France are trying to position themselves as global leaders in AI. Let's start with chips. How many semiconductor startups are there in the UK, Christina, and what kind of things are they working on? 
The UK has about 88 startups working on semiconductor technology. They mostly specialize in compound semiconductors, an alternative to silicon-based chips. Now, what I loved about your story was this this idea of these kind of these these representatives or these officials going around Cambridge and Oxford, you know, knocking on doors and trying to coax these amazing British startups over to the US. And it, is it like that, or is it a little less uh, sexy? Yes, so it's a bit like that. Over a year ago, the US passed its Chips Act, which is pumping fifty three billion dollars into research and manufacturing of semiconductors. So now, what the US wants is to make sure that it has the best companies to use this money. So we've heard that US officials, both from the Department of Commerce and different states within the US, are approaching UK startups to make sure that they apply for the money. What are the companies saying? And has there been any response from the UK government or the EU? Some UK companies, especially those that rely on big foundries to manufacture their chips, are seriously planning to bid for the US money. They are also warning they might eventually move a considerable amount of their work to the US. That means these companies are more likely to create jobs over there than here in Britain. But there are also those founders who feel the UK is a great hub for research and engineering. And they say their plan is to grow in parallel in both countries. When it comes to what governments say, however, I would like to note that the US is emphasizing very much that they do not want to compete in an unconstructive way with allies such as the UK. The UK is going along with this argument while defending the positive impact it says its own national strategy will have over British startups. But in private, some UK officials, officials and people working in VC acknowledge that the US efforts are annoying because you would want these companies to stay and flourish in the UK. In the end, they cannot do much about it, though. Mm. So interesting. Before we let you go, you've been reporting a lot on the UK's AI summit, which was announced by the Prime Minister in June. It's put the nation at the centre of the debate on how to build AI safely, but now there is a rival event in town. Indeed. And this has been a very interesting development from France just this week. So French billionaire and tech investor Xavier Niel has announced that he is hosting an AI conference in Paris on November the 17th, only two weeks after the British AI Safety Summit. And Neil wants to hold this event annually. The two events appear to have different goals, so the British one will be focused on the international governance of AI, while the French conference seems more focused on industry and innovation. But our UK sources say the French could have chosen a date that did not overshadow the UK summit. Classic. So a bit of rivalry there. Classic French move there. Thanks so much, Christina. And finally, we are joined by Violetta Bonnenkamp, the founder and CEO of educational gaming company Female Switch. She's been writing and sifted about her experience of applying for funding from the EU's European Innovation Council, known as the EIC, which gives out grants to innovative organisations working in the block. But unfortunately, as we'll hear, the process for applying for this kind of financing is not exactly straightforward. Violetta, welcome to the show. Could you first up just give us a quick introduction to what Female Switch does, please? Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for having me here. So Female Switch is actually my second startup, and I call it a pandemic baby because it was born during the pandemic. Uh, it actually... Uh, grew out of a need for more women in uh, technological startups. And it was our response to a call by the Dutch government. And I love that story because we applied for that call because I think 
part of that was because a lot of uh, people during the pandemic were kind of getting tired and frustrated. We were a B2B startup at the time and no one wanted to do in-person meetings and team was getting, uh, you know, losing morale. So when that call uh, came up, we decided to take it up as a bit of a distraction and why not? Uh, we were exactly what the Dutch government wanted, a gender balanced startup that's doing something in uh, deep tech. So yeah, we kind of also had an idea of how to multiply startups like us. But of course, we didn't get that grant. And the reason for that being was that despite the fact that they loved the idea, and, and uh, as usual, they would say that it was uh, full of innovation, and it was uh, scalable, it was great. But as I would often hear, they didn't believe that we were capable of building that very project in the amount of time that was allocated and in the with the budget restrictions uh, that they had. And uh, I don't know why, but immediately in my head, I and the rest of the team, we said, we're going to build it anyway, just, you know, just because we really love the idea. And four months later, we had the first a prototype. And of course, we didn't expect at the time that it would be uh, becoming so popular. Fast forward two years, we, we have already launched, after running a couple of pilots, we've launched a platform. And there is thousands of women on the waiting list, and there is already a, a few that are testing the platform for us before we open up to the public. It's, in two words, a browser-based startup game for women. And it sounds simple, and at the same time, it's complicated, but it's a simulator where you get to play. So it's a gamified experience you get to play, but at the same time, you're building your first virtual startup that might turn up to be an actual startup in real life, or you just get to learn a lot of entrepreneurial skills that you might need anywhere, even if you don't become an entrepreneur. And as you hinted, you've had your fair share of uh, experience applying for EIC money, and the EU isn't exactly known for being a very fast and agile machine. So can you kind of, I guess, briefly lay out for us, what, what does it, what is the experience like? What do you have to do in order to apply for EIC money? Well, I have experience with multiple funding mechanisms. And as I mentioned in the article, I think every startup in the beginning, they shouldn't aim for EU funding because it's a bit more complicated than national grants. National grants is something where you can uh, get started with. And the best way to do that, and this is how uh, we started with that, is to approach a regional or a national development agency. I'm pretty sure every country has it. I know that in the Netherlands, for example, every province has it. And of course, we were approached by them. And that is how we got started with uh, applying for funding. Because as you might imagine, as a startup, especially as a foreign startup in a country where you don't know uh, even the language, where you don't know how things work, you don't know where to get started. And it's the same, of course, for EU funding. Even uh, Where do you even start looking for, for the grants? How do you uh, approach that? And when you find them, how do you even figure out if you qualify? Because EU is known for its bureaucratic language. And uh, even though they expect startups to be very concise with application writing, there's always a 10 or 20 page limit. They themselves manage to write uh, hundreds of pages uh, where they require something that you can't figure out. You start feeling stupid because if it's your first time reading this, you're like, why can't I understand uh, if I even qualify? I really am grateful for AI for that because now you can just put that PDF and say, hey, do we qualify yeah, with a bit of uh, tweaking? So that's wonderful. So my experience has been, I think in general, good. I'm not going to say bad or great. I, th I think it's good if I compare to what I hear from other startups. But 
It's getting worse as we progress with the stage of the startup and with, of course, the amount of funding that we require. It was quite easier to get a small amount. So uh, say 20,000 or 50,000 that we managed to get when we applied and we wrote a very good application, right? So if we aim at this moment for uh, more than that, for let's say half a million to uh, two millions, uh, this is where things get complicated. The projects that we are interested in are not interested in us in a sense that we can't even apply because even though we qualify because startups are named as entity that can apply, uh, there is no room for us. So if it's a consortium that is uh, supposed to uh, be formed for the purpose of application, then we can't get into it because there are no consortiums with uh, free spots available. And can you, for someone who doesn't understand you know, all this EU jargon, as you pointed out, what, what is a consortium and how, how do they work? What role do they play in kind of applying for EU funding? So, and I'm talking from the point of view of startups, right? I'm sure that uh, the people who created those things will have a different explanation. But to me, the feeling is this is one of the ways to de-risk funding because if you fund one entity, yeah, you put in all the eggs in one basket. If you fund, let's say, five entities, then there's a chance that uh, the five of them will manage the project. So uh, a consortium is up to, I think usually it's up to five uh, companies and they have to be sometimes from different countries. So this is a way for EU to diversify funding as well so that the, the startups or companies from uh, countries that usually do not get funding can also participate in theory. And uh, the other distinction is, of course, those have to be different entities. So usually it's a university that will be the leader or it's an established company. So I don't think I've ever heard of a startup being a leader of those consortiums, even though to me it makes no sense because uh, when you say innovation, you automatically think startups because we are the quickest to bring that innovation uh, to life. No disrespect to universities and all the other entities, but speed is something that uh, we have and the others don't. So in order to uh, kind of uh, de-risk the funding, I think EU creates partnerships or consortiums. So putting the entities from different spheres together, which in theory is wonderful. In practice, I don't think it works that well, just because it's you have to have a project for, let's say, two years with people that you barely know, with people that have different goals because a university has a goal that's vastly different from a goal of a startup or a traditional development company or a chamber of commerce or non-profit organization. They all have different goals. So to be able to come up with a project that satisfies everyone and that everyone is equally passionate and capable of working on, theory is great. Practice, not so much. Your comment piece has kind of garnered quite a lot of reaction from the EIC, unusually. And I wondered what you thought of that. Michelle Schaefer published, who's the president of the board of the EIC, has published this series of tutorials that he says will help people like his critic, well, basically the critics of the EIC to, to apply for funding. And, and it feels a bit like, sorry, not sorry for me, but I don't know what you think of it so far. Well, I actually am supposed to have a call with him tomorrow, his initiative. Let's see if that goes uh, through. I'm really curious what it is that he wants to discuss. 
I really hope that it's going to be something constructive uh, for startups. I'm not interested in theory. I'm not interested in um, EU defending its position. I understand all these things. I understand there are multiple stakeholders, but I'm taking a bit of a selfish stance. I am representing startups, and I kind of want to make sure that if we're legally allowed to uh, participate in the you know in the cake then we want to have a piece of that cake uh, as well i did go through his tutorial several times i read it myself i had uh, my founder read it i had ai go through it all three of us agreed uh, i'm sorry i'm a linguist so i have to say this it's not a tutorial it's an article it's a, it's an opinion piece it's a, it's it's not a tutorial a tutorial is something that gives you a step by step guide on how to do things. And this is what's missing once again. If he wrote something that would help me as a startup figure out how to get into a consortium, I would be very thankful for that tutorial. That would be something valuable for me. But I also had this feeling that this is uh, his description of the situation, his explanation for why it is the way it is, and that we basically have to deal with it. And I commented on that post and I said, I don't subscribe to this point of view in this particular situation because I know that I'm not the only one in this situation and I'm speaking out not because I'm displeased or dissatisfied. I'm speaking out because at this point, that's the only thing that I can do. And my co-founder, he's a legal professional. So every time we look at these calls and uh, he reads the uh, conditions and he looks at it from a totally different perspective than I do, and for some reason, we both come with the same conclusion that the way these calls are written, there's some, something wrong in them. Uh, there's something that, even though startups are allowed to apply, there's something else there that is preventing them from getting uh, those grants, getting evaluated to the point that the projects are accepted. Because we were told in these very words that for one grant, we didn't get it because we were just in the startup phase which, of course, makes no sense. Yes, we are a startup. We're not hiding that. We're proud of that. It's not a disability. It's, I mean, one of the things that maybe I would like to discuss tomorrow with him is if it's possible to make it a, a rule that every consortium must have a startup. I know that's, uh, that's probably a ridiculous thing to even ask, but it's coming to the point when if we... If startups are not helped, and when I say we, I mean startups, not, not just my company. If we are not helped to uh, uh, walk through uh, the door, to work through the threshold, then we won't be able to participate. Mm, absolutely. And we can invite Mr. Schaefer on the podcast as well. It would be interesting to hear his, uh, his views. Thanks, Violetta. It's been really good talking to you. Thank you for having me. And a final reminder that it is just one week until the Sifted Summit, our flagship event on October 4th and 5th. That's next Wednesday and Thursday. I'll be moderating a bumper session of VC panels with some of the American investors spending money in Europe like Iconic, Left Lane and Bessemer to find out what their intentions are for the continent. And following that, I'll be having another discussion with a bunch of VCs about when the slowdown might end and how startups and investors are coping in the meantime. Find more more info about the summit in the show notes and please get your ticket and that is all we have time for if you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of european tech and startups you can find all our coverage on sifted.eu and you can find all the articles mentioned in this episode in the podcast description thanks a lot see you next time
Bye.